0: Well, as we continue to worship together this morning, let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Pray with me, please. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that in this holy hour you would come and manifest yourself powerfully and beautifully in our midst. For Father, that is what we are in need of. We confess we're sinners, but Father, we claim the name of Jesus Christ who died for us, and we are here in his name, many of us, needing to be fed from your holy word. Come and do that, Father. Send your Holy Spirit now to come and move and move freely among each and every person here, and we pray that as the power of the triune God is present here through His Spirit, that you would be glad to exhort, encourage, lift up, bind up, heal, and save in this place today according to your most good and perfect and sovereign will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all have deep inside of us, planted by God himself, an internal, enduring desire to come to know fully who we are. In fact, Socrates captured that well once when he said this, man, know yourself. It's one of life's greatest paradoxes, isn't it, that we spend so much of our lives so busy going about the affairs of our lives, we don't have time to stop and slow down and begin to discover who we really are. What makes us tick? Where do we find our identity? Life keeps us so busy, it's almost robotic fashion, we don't have time to think about who we are. Well, life is fast and busy, and can often get complicated, but life is not short on teaching opportunities, for better or for worse, positively or negatively, in helping us understand who we are, and where our identity comes from. For me, when I was a young boy, there were many negative influences that began to shape my identity early on in my life. Characteristically, throughout our young childhood years and through to the teenage years, these are considered the most formative years in helping us decide who we are, for good reason. They're such impressionable years. Again, for me, when I was a small boy, I grew up in a home in which my parents were divorced by the time I was the age of 10. But even before that, I grew up in a home with a father who was simply unloving and tuned me out. He had little use for me. And so these painful events early in my life began to shape, in my case, negatively speaking, who I was going to become. I did not have any positive role models in my life. And of course, then through the divorce, often sadly typical, mom then had to work three jobs, we were all left at home, so on and so forth. So just uh, many negative influences can shape our lives. So for me, I became a loner. I became part of the underachiever crowd, as it said. And so throughout school, I I did poorly throughout school, so that by the time high school graduation came, I would just often skip class, or if I was in class, just did so poorly, just tuned out mentally what was going on in the classroom. Did so poorly throughout all my school years, that by the time, again, high school graduation came, It was told to me after the fact that there was a friend who worked in the office who, as the story goes, changed my grade so that I could graduate. All all that to say, of course, I was a non-Christian then, but events negatively shape us, oftentimes in our lives. When I was growing up, in my yearbooks, you would have never seen under my picture the phrase, most likely to anything because of the negative influences that spoke to me every day of who I was. What about you? Who would you say you are? Do you oftentimes just stop and ponder, slow down in the busy routine of life that keeps you so busy, and do you ponder who you are inside of you? what God has made you to be, what events have shaped you positively and negatively, and how all this comes together to form your identity, your concept of who you are. And more importantly, we all have this stream of uh, negative influences that constantly broads us every day. And we get so used to listening to these things in our lives, don't we? These negative patterns of, of who we are. But more importantly, I want to ask you, rather than settling for this constant stream of negativity in your life, are you willing to hear Scripture speak to you that if you are in union with Christ through saving faith in His Son, then your identity is no longer what it once was? There has been a dramatic change that has occurred in your life. You are now hidden with Christ in God, and you are richer than the richest king this earth knows. And you are of more value than the most valuable treasures that this world can bestow on us in this life. So today, as we dive into God's word, I'm going to invite everyone to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Again, Colossians chapter 3. I'll give you just a moment to get there. As you're searching for that, this morning we're going to examine one question. Where does our identity come from? And we're going to explore that question by looking or by exploring the glories of our union with Christ. Again, where does our identity come from? Exploring the glories of union with Christ there in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Will you follow along as I read aloud these uh, four short verses in Colossians chapter 3? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Well, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first thing we're going to look at today as we examine that text, you have in your outline, point number one, your union with Christ is possible because you have been raised with Christ. Again, your union with Christ is possible Because you have been raised with Christ. At the heart of the Christian faith is that incredible reality that we have been brought into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through His sacrificial work on the cross on our behalf. And it is that that is the foundation now of where we get our identity from. We have become co-heirs with Him to all the treasures of heaven because in a real sense... When he was on that cross and he died and was buried and was raised, in a rare sense, the point of the gospel is that we too died with him. We too were buried with him. And as he was resurrected to newness of life, we were resurrected with him. These are the glories of the gospel that begin to shape who we are. So that's why Paul, in verse 1, opens it up with that phrase we already looked at, if then... You have been raised with Christ. And what Paul means there, uh, by the phrase, if then, Paul's not questioning or wondering if it actually took place. They, there were multiple ways to communicate the same thing, just like in any language. Some of your translations actually more appropriately say since. Since you have been raised with Christ, that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is affirming this is the case. Therefore, because this is the case, do this. So since you have been raised with Christ, now when he says that, the opening verse there in in verse 1 actually connects us back to what precedes throughout chapter 2. Paul had just been correcting many erroneous beliefs beliefs, that these early believers in Colossae began to think in terms of what saving faith in Christ is. So, for instance, if you want to take just a flyover look of chapter 2 with me, you can look down at chapter 2. For instance, in verse 19, you see the phrase, submitting to human regulations. The The do not touch section. Do not touch. Do not eat. So on and so forth. But Paul corrects them and says, essentially, why are you doing these things? These things are but a shadow. It is Christ that they all point to. And then in verse 18, we see they're getting caught up in verse 18 with asceticism and worship of angels and visions. In verse 16, it's legalism. In verse 8, Paul very descriptively says this, they're being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and human traditions. And then all the way up in chapter 2, verse 4, Uh, They are being persuaded, as Paul calls it, by plausible arguments as opposed to faith in Christ. So one thing is clear, these believers are getting a lot of things wrong. They are in danger of settling for something other than Jesus Christ and Him alone as the starting point of their faith and as the starting point of who they are. The danger for them, as it is for us, In adding anything to our faith is that it will soon be that thing which we're adding to our faith which takes our focus, won't it? We've seen that very practically, I'm sure, in in many of our lives, practically speaking, as we seek to live for Christ. As soon as we start to bring anything else into it to help define us, it's that which takes our focus. But the gospel says it is Christ plus nothing that saves. Christ plus nothing. It is Christ who is the object of our affection. It is Christ alone in whom all things, all other things together against Christ simply do not compare. It is the person of Jesus Christ who is our great reward and our priceless treasure if we've repented and believed in Christ. We are in union with Christ. He becomes our treasure. We don't need to add anything else to that. Christ sets free, but all else enslaves. Christ welcomes and loves, but all else is destructive and robs us of who we are and what we have. It is Christ and salvation through Christ and Christ alone for every day of our Christian lives through which we find true liberty and true identity. Paul, in writing to his young protege, in First Timothy verse one, excuse me, First Timothy chapter one, verse nineteen, Paul tells the young protege Timothy, this. And speaking of the concern, even in that local congregation, uh, that there th- there seems to be evidence that they're adding things to their faith, Paul warns Timothy that there were some who actually made shipwreck their faith very picturesque language, to try and warn them, this is a dangerous thing you're doing. You are in danger of making shipwreck your faith. Well, the church in Colossae was facing the same danger because they, too, were attempt, attempting to add to their faith Christ plus something rather than Christ plus nothing. We understand that if we make that same error, it doesn't matter what that other thing is we attempt to add to our faith. The point is this, if we add anything at all, it makes shipwreck our faith precisely because it devalues the great captain of our faith, Jesus Christ, who alone is of such matchless value that to, have, that to not have him and him alone makes the gospel not worth having at all. The gospel is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's exactly why also here in Colossians, Paul reminds them and tells them that it's in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. My friends, He is our great reward. In Him, we have all that we need. So again, that's why Paul... In chapter 2, verse 6, look back up again in verse 6, Paul prods them with these words that we need to hear. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, what? So walk in Him. Rooted and built up how? In Him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Well, my wife and I, we love movies. We're movie buffs. One of our favorite movies is the Hobbit trilogy, like I'm sure for many of you, the Hobbit trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy that what was made before it but precedes it. In the second of the Hobbit series, The Desolation of Smaug, the dwarves who lived in the mountain of er- er- Erebor had amassed untold wealth and gold and precious jewels and gems, much of which they had mined directly out of the mountain itself. And within the deep, deep boughs of this mountain lay great untold hordes of the most unimaginable wealth you could ever imagine. So great was their wealth that it had become known throughout all of Middle Earth. So priceless was their wealth that it was said to be legend. All other kingdoms would come and pay homage to the dwarf king as a result of the riches that they had amassed. Well, my friends, this is but a small picture of what we have, what you have in Christ. If we have repented of our sins, forsaken this world, and accepted Christ as our Savior, we have, in Christ, become wealthy beyond measure, precisely because in the act of being saved, being buried, dead, and raised with Christ, we are brought in union with Christ, and all that he has has now become ours. He is our inheritance, our great reward. And my friends, if we end this life with nothing but him, we have the most untold, unfathomable, fathomable, I can't even say it, it's so great, wealth given to us, because he is of such priceless treasure. Never leave the gospel. Never leave the gospel. It is Christ and him alone, crucified, that is the gospel itself. You don't have to look for it to anything else. Christ is the gospel. It's Christ plus nothing once we enter the faith, and it is Christ plus nothing for every single day we live this life. So, go to Christ to discover your identity. Cut off that stream of negativity that you're so used to telling yourself and listening to, and that others barrage you with. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, that's for you as well. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. So, if you're here today, look up. Look up to Christ. The one in whom our intimate union is forever established. Our prize and our great reward. Look up to him. Your union with Christ. Your union with Christ is possible because we have been raised with Christ. And now second in your outline, your union with Christ is secure. Seek the things that point to your union. Again, point number two. Your union with Christ is secure. Seek the things that point to your union. Here in verses 1 and 2, Paul gives essentially two commands. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on things above. What I hope to do here is to address those two commands in the next few minutes. show how they're different yet related and then explain what the things above are, because that's obviously one thing that grabs our attention, right? We're to set our minds on things above, seek them, but what are the them? So we'll try and get to that. First, notice this. The two twin commands that Paul gives, seek those things which are above and set our minds on things above, are a present, ongoing reality. In other words, what Paul is really saying there is, Seek and keep on seeking those things that are above. Set your mind and keep on setting your minds on things above. It is a continual activity that we are to be engaged in. In other words, that past completed action, remember how verse 1 started, you have been raised with Christ. That's a past action with ongoing implications. That makes it possible for us to do what Paul is now saying here. So this seeking and this setting are the two main characteristics of the one who through saving faith in Jesus Christ has been brought into union with him. In other words, it's what sets us apart, this new activity. There is to be a constant activity that marks out the one whose life is hidden with Christ and God. It is an activity that is a way of life. It defines the one who's engaged in it. It's what kindles our hearts To be aflame for God. Now granted, uh, we all struggle with that, don't we? Each and every day we we struggle to to get up, to, to get in the word, to do these things we know that help kindle our hearts aflame to pursue God. We all struggle with that. You're in kindred spirits here. But this, these are the activities we're to be engaged in, however imperfectly we may do them at times. We are to now, in Christ, our trajectory is not a horizontal one, it's a vertical one upward to heaven. We have now set our minds on things in heaven, not on things of the earth. Much like I was reflecting on as I was preparing this, that very quick phrase in the Gospels where it says that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Whatever was going to come in between now and then, all the sovereign encounters he was going to have, it says he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was his mission. And my friends, we need to set our minds on things above. That is our mission. That is our heavenly reward. That, by God's grace, is one day in Christ going to be our reward. We will one day be there. So now, live this life in the here and now, by looking to what's there. But oh, take heart. We often so get weary, don't we? That sounds good. We know it's biblical, but practically speaking, we deal with so much discouragement in our lives. Some days we get up and we just don't want to get in in the word. We don't. But oh, my friends, don't look down. Look up. Look up to him. Look up to the Christ who first saved you For in that act in history, he has made sure your spiritual progress will happen. Because it is bound to what, as Paul said in verse 1, since you have been raised with Christ, do these things. The two are inextricably tied together. The one is going to happen because the other one already took place. So that is why Paul, again, intentionally opens the chapter the way he does. He's telling us that the demands of the gospel to continue to pursue Christ flow out of what God has already done in Christ for you. It is a life that uh, has an inward comportion to want to get to know more the one with whom we are now united. (laughs) This inward comportion has outward evidences as well. A continual seeking and setting on the things that are above. So now, how are these twin commands different, yet related? I want to suggest this. The command to seek the things that are, that are above is the pursuit. It's the actual activity that Paul has in mind. And the command to set your minds on things above is the mindset resolved to engage in the activity. In other words, we must first set our minds on, the, on these things. Like Jesus did, he said it. That was going to be his mission. We, too, We set it in our minds. This is going to be our mission as God's people united in him to seek those things which are above. So that is how these two commands are different yet related. It is the mind to be resolved to be wholly engaged in the pursuit of Christ himself. But how are we to do this practically speaking? That's the command, that's what the text is saying, but practically speaking, in our own lives as Christians, what do we do day in and day out in our homes, our workplace, so on and so forth, that help us to set and to pursue, to have that mindset? Well, for me, as I reflect this past, on this past week, as I was preparing for this sermon, and I'm thinking of you know, what helped me kindle my heart, it was being in the Word, It was meditating on the word and praying the word. As I was preparing this throughout the week, my prayer became this text. God, help me to be the first one to live out this sermon. Help me to make this resolute commitment to set my mind on things above, not on things of the earth, and to seek those things which are above. My friends, that's where it's at. Uh, And I certainly don't have it down because, again, many days I deal with the same discouragement that we all do. But that's where it is for us. We need to do these things. Are you getting up at whatever appropriate time of the day is for you? Are you getting in the word? Are you meditating on the word? Whether even if you have a busy life, if you're just taking writing, scribbling down some verses on a card and keeping that with you throughout the day. Are you pulling that out out periodically throughout the day as you're working? And are you meditating on it? Whatever your daily activities are, however busy they may be, are you seeking to meditate on God's word, to kindle your heart, to seek those things which are above? Are you regularly getting together with a brother and sister in Christ for an accountability relationship, a discipleship relationship? Just get together over a cup of coffee and seek to encourage one another, share something from God's word, and just talk about it. These are the things that help us do what Paul is suggesting here. Now, finally, what are these things above? We know we're to seek them and keep on seeking them. We're to set our minds and keep on setting our minds on things that are above. We've talked about how they're different yet related commands. But now what are the things In other words, what's the object of our affection supposed to be? Well, I think according to the context that we've already been reviewing in chapters 2 and 3, the things above are all the rights and privileges stored up for you in heaven, of which we now have a foretaste in this life. In other words, once we make Christ our Savior, we begin to live the Christian life now, and it's a foretaste of what we'll eventually become. So there is a sense in which we live out, we experience in the here and now, a portion of what finally and fully awaits us in heaven. So it is all the rights and privileges stored up for us in Christ, those are the things that are above. And ultimately, it's, it's who? It's Christ himself. Ultimately, it's Jesus. It's Jesus reigning at the right hand of the Father that we are to set our minds on. And all that has become ours because of what he has done for us. It's Jesus and the treasures that we have in him that we are to seek. So let me ask you a very simple question. Do you want to pursue these things that are above? You want to pursue what is rightly yours in Christ. Protestant, John, uh, excuse me, Protestant reformer John Calvin once said this, drink from no other fountain than Christ. I love that. Drink from no other fountain than Christ. Are you drinking from Christ, your fountain, the fountain of your faith, daily and richly? Are you drinking from him? As I began to, to think about that, comment that John Calvin once said it made me think you know what is a fountain a fountain is the source of life it's from the fountain that everything else flows that we need my friends Christ is our fountain he is our source of life pursue him drink from no other fountain but Christ and again we've talked about how you drink from Christ you get in the word you meditate you get together with believers you worship so on and so forth Drink from Christ. My friends, I guarantee you this. If this week, you start off this week taking your spiritual thirst to Christ, your fountain, I guarantee you, you won't go away unquenched. You won't go away with that thirst. He will quench your thirst. Well, your union with Christ is secure So seek the things that point to your union. And finally, your union with Christ is glorious. It's not you who lives anymore. And you notice in your outline, that does reflect a change. Point number three, the last half of point number three, if you're writing and you want to change it, let me give you the point again. Your union with Christ is glorious. It is not you who lives anymore. So just scratch out the the way the point ends in your outline and insert that. It's not you who lives anymore. It's here in verses three and four where so many of us have found so much strength and comfort from Scripture, isn't it? We love these verses here. For you have died, and your life is hidden, hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or like... I'm sure just about every one of you, I have derived so much strength and comfort from that verse over the years in my Christian life. Never really spent much time digging into it until now. But that's just such a powerful, picturesque statement, isn't it? It it has so much encouragement for us. But but look what's going on here in verses 3 and 4. It's here that gets to the heart of something mysterious about the Christian life this idea of being hidden with Christ what does that mean because notice what's going on you have died yet you live the verse says you have died and your what your life is hidden with Christ you've died yet you live one of the greatest paradoxes of the gospel is that it should no longer be you or me that everyone around us sees anymore People around you knew you once. But now there has been such a dramatic change in our lives because of the gospel. It is no longer the old us that people see anymore. It's you, but it's not you. It's the new you. It is Christ in you. It is your life hidden with Christ in God. Paul communicates this same mysterious concept of of the center of the gospel elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm sure many of you right now probably have this verse in your minds. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul similarly says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of my greatest influences in my own Christian life, some of you may know, is a pastor by the name of John Piper, still lives, still pastors a a large church in Minneapolis. Well, many years ago, as I was listening to to John Piper speak about that Galatians 2.20 text, the I have been crucified text, and it is now no longer I who live, he said something that to me, uh, this day sticks with me. I don't know how many years ago it was he said this, but it stuck with me. And it's simply this, he labeled that text in his sermon, the great exchange. The great exchange. Because in the gospel, it is not us that lives, it is Christ. There has been an exchange that has taken place. Now, back to the text in Colossians. It is the old us, now hidden with Christ in God, And in the process of being hidden with Christ, the old us passes away and we live a new identity. So that Galatians 2.20 text is a sister text to what we're reading today here. So, how does something so mysterious that is at work within us also work outwardly? In other words, how how do people evidence this? We talked about how, People were used to seeing us, but now it's a new us. There's something different about it, yet it's mysterious because our life is hidden with Christ in God. So this new life in Christ, there's a sense in which it's hidden. It's not going to be fully understood or fully seen by those around us, particularly if they're non-Christians. Well, how does this become visible to those around us? And that's what Paul, if we had time today to go throughout the chapter, uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 4, but then in verses 5 through 11, Paul basically unpacks, and then 12 and following, Paul is unpacking what this hidden life looks like. In other words, in, in verses 5 to 11, there's a list of things that says should no longer characterize your life because you're now hidden with Christ and God. It's a new life. These things, verses 5 to 11, should now no longer identify who you are. And then in verses 12... Through 17 and really throughout the end of the chapter, Paul then describes, positively speaking, what this new hidden life is to look like. So again, in the mystery of the gospel that we are hidden with Christ in God, there's a secretive element of it that nobody's going to be able to see or understand. But there's also an outward working of it that is evident to all those around us. But there's something else intended in this phrase to be hidden with Christ in God. And you're probably thinking of it right now because it's it's really spread throughout the text or it wasn't mentioned specifically. And that's the concept of security. You are secure in Christ is what is meant by that phrase. You are hidden with Christ in God. It means that you are kept by Christ because you are now his. We are his property. He purchased us by his blood on the cross so that now we no longer have claim over our lives. It is Christ who staked his claim on you, and it is now Christ who firmly has each and every one of us in the grip of his grace. And my friends, that is a grip that is never going to let go. So you go this week confident, emboldened in your faith to dig deep into the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge that await you in Christ because you are firmly in his grip. He will never let you go, my friends. Jesus said exactly that in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Our Savior said this My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater. Than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My friends, to be in Christ is to be secure, securely in the grip of God, our Father. If you're here today, I want to encourage you that that's something that awaits you. You've been created by God, you are meant for something more than this life offers. Your identity is not fully to be in this life. Won't you come through saving faith in Christ and be in the grip of his grace? As I was, again, preparing this sermon this past week, trying to grapple with, with the mysteriousness of this, the fact that there's a certain part that's hidden and a certain part that's visible, trying to bring those two together, I came across something Helpful that I want to read to you an illustration from pastor and theologian Sam Storms. Sam Storms says this of of what it means to be hidden with Christ in God. He, He says, Paul's use of the word hidden is somewhat analogous to what we can and cannot see of a flower. Again, Paul's use of the word hidden is somewhat analogous to what we can and cannot see of a flower. The root system is concealed beneath the surface of the earth. How it derives nutrients from the soil and contributes to the growth of the stem, leaf and petal is unseen, oftentimes being somewhat of a mystery. But the beauty of the rose is for all to behold. Its color, its fragrance are ever on display for the joy of his people. Likewise, the Christian whose strength and incentive and inner life are hidden from you, but whose kindness, whose faith, whose perseverance and love are perpetual witness to the glory of God's grace from within. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, you've never repented of your sins, let me ask you a question. Where in this life do you derive your happiness? And I am talking about a happiness that pain and sickness and death will not rob from you. What treasure do you have in life that will not rot and rust and be lost or taken away? If the answer to those questions is anything other than because I have made Christ my personal Lord and Savior through repentance and faith, then my friends your happiness and your treasure in life will one day be lost. Don't settle for that. Would you be willing now, for the sake of gaining Christ, would you be willing now to lose all that you have? Because, oh, my friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ, he is simply unable to be compared to anything this life offers, to anything we would be able to amass in this life. You can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now uh, in just a moment as we go to God in prayer. But what I want to do as I close this out this morning, again, as I was preparing this past week, it, it's helpful to, to have multiple translations of the Bible at home for obvious reasons as you're studying the Bible to look in various transi- uh, translations, get a better grasp of what's going on. As we close, I want to read to you this text of Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, from the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase. A paraphrase is essentially, its, its goal is to uh, take the essence of the meaning of a passage and put it in common language. It's not intending to translate literally word for word. It wants to get to the essence of what's being said. So listen to the Living Bible translation of Colossians chapter 3. Since you have became alive again, so to speak, when Christ rose from the dead, now set your sights on the rich treasures and joys of heaven where he sits beside God in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend time worrying about things down here. You should have as little desire for this world as a dead person does. Your real life is in heaven with Christ and God. And Christ, who is our real life, when he comes back again, you will shine with him and share in all the glories of heaven. Well, my friends, your union with Christ is possible because you have been raised with Christ. Your union with Christ is secure Seek the things which are above, which point to your union. Your union with Christ is glorious. It is not you who lives anymore. Go this week in the power and strength of that promise. Let's bow and pray together now. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that in Christ we have such untold wealth. Thank you that in that one act in history of Jesus giving Himself for all those who repent and believe in Him, that we are brought somehow into union with Him, and that union is secure, and we are ever in the grip of Your grace. So give us strength as a result of that grip You have on us, and as a result of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Give us grace to go this week and live in the fullness of what has been done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.